This episode of Live from CapTime's IdeaFest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from CapTime's IdeaFest. I'm Eric Lawrenson. Over the course of the coming weeks, we're going to be bringing you recordings from the second annual CapTime's IdeaFest, a two-day event at the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus full of smart conversations about politics, community, and culture. Today, we bring you a conversation with Jim Doyle, who served as governor of Wisconsin for two terms from 2003 to 2010, following his stint as the state's attorney general. The longtime Democrat sat down with Washington Post associate editor David Marinus at the Idea Fest for a conversation about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, gun control, criminal justice, and why Kingpin is the best bowling movie of all time. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk. It's really a, a special pleasure for me to be on a public stage with, with Governor Doyle. Um, as it happens, uh, the first people that my family met when we moved to Madison in 1957 were the Doyles. We moved to a, a rental house on Chandler Street, and, and the Doyles were already well-established uh, Caddy Corner across on Campbell. Um, so when I was eight years old, we were playing kick the can and other uh, street games with the Doyles and the Nanias and the people in that neighborhood. And um, so the first people we met in Madison were the Doyles. Um, and beyond that, uh, uh, Jim's wonderful wife, Jessica's younger sister, Lissa, was a classmate of Linda's and mine at Madison West High School. So the the connections run run pretty deep. Jim, you know, the, the elephant in the room is still there, so let's start there um, with Kavanaugh hearings. But what I really thought that you could add a special flavor to is your career as a district attorney and as an attorney general in dealing, um, looking past the emotion to the uh, uh, rational assessment of the witnesses that you watched on Thursday and how you judged from that perspective, Dr. Ford as, as she presented herself and Kavanaugh as he did. I wanna say I, uh, um, sure. that um, first of all, thank you. Thank you, David. It's wonderful being up here with, you know, I never thought that kid would become like <laughs> world famous. Nobody did, believe me. <laughs> He, I knew his brother better, who was a very, very brilliant uh, person. I never, we never suspected that, that Dave was the guy that was going to do it. <laughs> uh, I always say I was the dumb kid in the family, and it's true. <laughs> 
but I will also want to say the Marinus family was wonderful, and David's parents were, as many of us know who knew them, were wonderful people. Uh, and Elliot was, well, they both were such an important part of this community for a long time, and then went and you know then went to Milwaukee and became incredibly important part of uh, Milwaukee and a lot of urban good urban policy that was developed there. So um, it, I'm glad to be here. Well, I, you know, my reaction, I think, was probably what everybody else in this room's is. I mean, she was incredibly believable. There was, seemed to be absolutely no reason in the world that she would ever be putting herself through this unless she believed it, um, unless, she, unless it had happened to her. Uh, clearly, the, the memories of two witnesses, uh, to give him some benefit of the doubt, are really dependent on how important the issue is to them. And I'm reminded, I don't want to put comedy into a very serious uh, area, but I'm reminded of one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Kingpin, if any of you have ever seen it. It's just a great bowling movie. And, and um, <laughs> Woody Harrelson and is, is a two-bit bowling hustler, and Bill Murray is the great creepy champion. And they kind of team up and go in to try to hustle some people uh, in a bowling alley. And the result of it is they, uh, the people figured out that they were um, hustling them, grab Woody Harrelson and put his hand down the ball. I shouldn't laugh about such things, but the ball return machine, and it cuts his hand off. And so Woody Harrelson's career as a bowler is over, and he lives the next 20 years in just total misery, alcoholism, just down and out. And then he meets an Amish bowler, and that's all part of the whole story, Dennis Quaid. But they end up at a big bowling tournament. And Woody Harrelson sees, uh, there is sort of a serious point to this, sees Bill Murray at the, uh, at, and he comes up to him and he says, I've been thinking for 20 years what I would say to you. You know, his hand is gone, his life has been miserable. What I would say to you if I ever saw you again, I've been, I've worked this conversation through in my mind millions of times. And I've, I, and Murray looks at him and says, you're still hung up on that? I go, got over that a long time ago. <laughs> And that's kind of what I think we're seeing here is something that had an enormous effect on one person's life and the other person maybe doesn't even remember it because it wasn't that big a deal for what, uh, what he had been involved in. And that says a lot about him as a person. It says a lot about us as a kind of culture and of a time, David's heard me go on about this, that we grew in up, grew up with about how boys and girls dealt with each other, and it was not a healthy situation. Uh, now, that's, but let me just say, that's that cultural issue, I've never grown up in a culture where it's okay to hold somebody down, put your hand over their head, you know, their mouth to keep them from yelling. So I believed her. I didn't believe him. I, it, it, ben, I want to make one other point, which gets made quite a bit here, but since you prefaced this as a former district attorney, attorney general, um, he has no entitlement to be on the Supreme Court of the United States. This, think how many of us who have hired people have had kind of questions about, you know, we have five good applicants, 
and we have very good, we have some questions about one of them. We don't go through some big due process thing in our mind. We say, I've kind of got questions about that one, and maybe we're being completely unfair, and maybe we should, but, but it happens, it'll happen a million times in the United States in the next week that somebody applying for a job will not get a job because the person who's employing has some kind of question about whether they might fit in right or whatever it is. And that's all this is. I mean, this thing has gotten so tangled up in criminal procedure and presumptions of innocence, and which has really nothing to do with this. We now have a really pretty serious issue about whether you should hire this guy to be a Supreme Court justice and we have a lot of other good people, even Republican people, who could be, who would be good Supreme Court justices. So, I, you know, why we now have to say, did she, she proved her case? There's no case to be proved here, and the, and and the idea, and the the, the idea that they go around saying, um, I believe her. How can you believe her? The Republican on the committee. And then say, but it's okay. I mean, she has testified convincingly that she's 100% certain that this is what happened. And yes, she can. And believe me, I've been in sexual assault cases. This stuff that Lindsey Graham is going on about how you have to know the exact time and place. We've, I've been in prosecutions with child sexual abuse where the child can't tell us it happened on... Uh, you know, July 16th at 8.30 a.m. That That's not... These cases often have difficulties in time and place. And so, anyway, I, to me, it's, again, it's like, it's the Woody Harrelson. It's it's these guys, Kavanaugh, saying, you're still hung up on that? I mean, what are you so hung up? You know, I, I got over that. I, I'm ready. One of them even said something like, uh, I think it was Kavanaugh said, I'm ready to move on. Well, you bet he's ready to move on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because obviously this very traumatic thing happened that has not allowed another person to move on. So a woman with absolutely nothing to gain and much to lose by coming forward and publicly disclosing this, um, this isn't just somebody who stood up and said, this is what happened to me, ha, 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 pay me a lot of money. This is a woman who's obviously... Uh, this is a difficult, difficult thing for her to do. So I thought she was completely believable. The beauty of live interviews, I bet no one thought we'd hear about Kingpin this morning. <laughs> Matter of fact, I think Linda and I walked out of that movie. Now we'll oh. have to watch it again. <laughs> you got to go. Yeah, with. definitely. I mean, I'm, there's a big I'm argument bad. of whether uh, Kingpin or uh, the Big Lebowski is the greatest no, the, bowling movie ever made. And I, <laughs> I say it's Kingpin. I'm a Lebowski guy. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> Uh, you know, when you're talking about the specifics of, of the questioning of Dr. Ford, um, small things hit everybody in different ways, and um, obviously there are enormous emotional uh, waves that went over my wife and probably every woman who watched that. And for me, along with trying to feel that, I when when some when the when uh, that female woman prosecutor tried to pin her down about uh, flying, but being afraid to fly. Um, I mean, I've been afraid to fly my whole life, and I've flown all over the world. It just seemed that was you know, part of the preposterousness of the whole thing. 
Um, if that had played out in a court, I think you've probably yeah. heard, but in fact, where she testified like that and he came and was belligerent like that, I don't think a jury would have had any problem with that case. If they, if those two people had been in front of a jury and had, had testified in the manner that they testified, it was, uh, I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, the whole uh, Me Too movement and the women's movement is, is, is vibrant right now in a way. Um, you know, revived in an incredibly powerful way. And I would say it's one of uh, three sort of major movements for social change in the country today. And I know that you've played a, a really, both in your professional life and in your personal life, the other two social movements have really affected you uh, or you've played out in very serious ways. The, the first one goes back, uh, you know, to the, in its recent iteration to the Parkland shooting and, and what's sort of bubbled up over gun control since then and whether it will play out. And I know that you dealt with that very seriously when you were governor and before that. And, and I'm, I'm curious about, about your perspective on why there hasn't been more change, why Democratic candidates seem almost fearful to, to, to come out strongly on that issue and how you've handled it. You know, I teach a, I teach a class um, uh, about politics of state issues, and I start the class by saying, let's talk about, give me your thoughts of over the last 20 years, what's been the most effective lobbying, political messaging uh, uh, movement in the country, and then what's been the least? And they all have ideas, but mine that I try to convince them on is, the NRA has been the most successful. Uh, they have created a message that has resonated. They have developed political power that's way beyond their numbers. And I think it just has scared people ridiculously. So here's my record on it. I, I've won, um, I've never been defeated in an election. I've won seven statewide, uh, uh, three attorney general primary, seven statewide elections. I've been the, the, the NRA's number one target in my re-election in 2006 uh, for governor. I was the number one national target. They put $4 million of television ads into Wisconsin against me, not about guns, interested in, you know, about whether I was a crook and stuff like that. Uh, when I was attorney general, we adopted background checks before for handguns before there was ever a Brady bill enacted. Uh, uh, we had led a movement unsuccessfully to try to ban, to actually ban the little, um, the, the little uh, $25 handguns that were really the plague. Uh, uh, we, uh, you know, all of the national issues, uh, I was with the attorneys general who were against, you know, supporting assault ban weapons. So, you know, my record on this is, well, it was it earned me the number one target. Um, I and in, as governor, I vetoed I think on three separate occasions, two at least I remember, uh, concealed the doing away with our concealed weapons law. Which, by the way, when you look at the spike in gun violence in Madison and around the state, go back and correlate that to the time that they got rid of the concealed weapon laws. I mean, it is a pretty direct correlation. Um, and I, we would go through these, ma these really intense veto override fights on concealed weapon, uh, and I always, my veto was always sustained by 
one vote because even though we had because Democrats would would want to we don't want to do we got to vote for the gun people and then I'd always manage to get them to agree that we were going to have you know you you seven others can go vote against me but I need to have 34 votes that will sustain this veto and if I don't know if any of you remember those days some of you were involved in it. I see some good uh, members of the team out here um, but the capital was filled and you know there was just tension all over so for all of that, I, to go into it, I never saw one indication in any poll that I ever did that it had any effect on my any election that I've ever been in. So, uh, the, and and I the concealed weapon was one of the greatest political issues anybody could ask for, because I looked like a incredibly courageous person standing up against the gun lobby. But I knew that 80% of the people of Wisconsin and like 97% of the women of Wisconsin were on my side on this issue. Whenever I would veto it, we'd have these great veto ceremonies and uh, we'd, we'd have the whole stage lined with law enforcement officers that were supporting this. Uh, that's where the people are. And yet it is amazing how Democratic politicians run and hide on this issue. And the advisors tell them, you can't go near this. I mean, I've been in many of these discussions. You can't go near this. Why? Uh, um, my answer is, I don't know why. I mean, it, to me, it's a misreading of, of where we're at. Uh, it's a miscalculation. Democrats are always now trying, and I I understand. I mean, you're trying to get elected, and but they're trying to let's get it down to just background checks. You know, really background checks. That's good, but can't we get rid of assault? Uh, you know, when when, you, when these kids have been killed, can't we get rid of them? <laughs> and by the way, we did get rid of them in the Clinton years. And if you want to make another correlation, go and look at these mass shootings that have happened since they took the since they repealed the assault weapon ban. And in order for that to work, you've got to get it in place and have it in place for 5, 10, 15 years as these guns come off the street. And we had done that as a country in the 90s and now have gone the other direction. So uh, in my judgment, and I tell this all the time, I think this is a serious miscalculation. Um, uh, the, the polling is strong on how the public feels about this. There is a great feeling that, and there's a lot of truth to this, that the gun issue is really salient for gun owners in, in the sense that they will vote on that issue. It's not so salient on the anti-gun people because they believe that, but they're not necessarily going to vote that way. But I think you see that turning on these Parkland kids are fantastic. Um, and they're just sort of speaking truth to power, as they say. Uh, and I, I think you, I hope you'll see, I mean, one of the myths, although they got it to happen, that got the, the Supreme Court to declare there was an individual right to, to guns. And look at the Second Amendment. It doesn't say it. And I watch, I listen to every, I listen to every Democrat now say, and you'll hear it over and over again, um, now, I believe in the Second Amendment, but, and then they go on to what they say. I never prefaced anything that I said with that. And um, uh, so, but in the Second Amendment never meant what it meant until they got a Supreme Court that said that that's what it meant. And so 
I, I do think that uh, a candidate, I hope our next presidential candidate is one that's going to stand up and make this a big issue. And my, my belief is that it's a winning issue. It's becoming more salient as people now watch this happen and say, we can't keep having this happen. How do these guys, like what just happened in Madison, how do they walk in with just these arsenals of guns? It, this doesn't make any sense. You teach at the university now at the La Follette School, and you've, you've been dealing with young people through this, the course of this. And of course, we've always thought of the young people as the wild card in, in elections. And if they voted, it would make a huge difference. Do you see any difference in this generation, including the Parkland kids, in terms of, of how they're going to affect uh, national politics or state politics? Um, I don't know, because we always think that's going to happen. Obviously, the students I teach at La Follette are going to vote, and yeah. they've voted forever, and they will vote in the future, and it's what they love and what they do. Um, <laughs> Jessica and I have a great a wonderful grandson who's now uh, 19 years old and freshman in college. He's fully engaged. He's voted in every election, but then, you know, he's got parents and grandparents, everything but telling him you got to go vote. Um, <laughs> but he's, but he's pretty involved. So, I mean, I don't want to make my judgment based on a sample of one, uh, but I think so. I think so. But I, I don't think there's going to be this sudden, wave. I do think that this generation will move through and it will make a huge difference. Obviously, they think very differently on a lot of issues, including guns, but gay rights. Uh, they think differently about a lot of issues, and that will, that will be heard as they move through the, the progression. You said you never lost an election, um, which is true. And uh, the governor before you ran three times, the governor after you is running for a third time. Why didn't you run for a third term? Well, it's a lot of reasons. I mean, a couple of them. Um, one, it was talked about last night, and I really believe this. People have to be willing to move aside. I, I, I don't believe in term limits, because I think there are instances where those are really just, they lead to a foolish result. So I think that takes some discipline on the part of office holders. Um, I, for example, I love Nancy Pelosi. I've worked closely with Nancy Pelosi. I, uh, she is a person to be, in my judgment, to be admired and respected and has done amazing things. But at some point for the party, you've got to kind of say, you know, as you get into your 70s and 80s, it's really time to move, and I don't mean to pick on her because I could pick on a whole a whole host of them. A raft of presidential candidates. A raft of, right. Uh, and I really don't mean to because, in fact, I shouldn't have even mentioned her because I can think of many more than her that I would rather see be the ones to, to move on. But I, so I would say that was a, a really major factor. Also, I'd been at it for 20 years. I had run statewide campaigns every four years for five consecutive years, uh, five consecutive times. That's a long time to do it. Um, it uh, I, I was a really good fundraiser. I had sort of raised more money than Democrats ever did, and I know probably in this audience that's a bad thing, but I'll tell you, if you want to win elections, you better have more money than the person you're running against. But I didn't really, I knew what that took. Um, and, uh, 
you know, when when the results of the election happened, and, and I, you know, I also say I think compared to, to to most, in fact, maybe to anybody in the state, I understood what was coming with these Republicans. I had vetoed most of this stuff at some time. It, you know, it sort of surprised me that the public in Wisconsin thought, "Whoa, I didn't expect this." Well, if I know people don't watch all the bills that come through and what happens, but I, I had probably vetoed. 15 anti-collective bargaining bills during my time. Um, I think I vetoed over 20 abortion-related bills during my time. Uh, I had a Republican legislature for six of the eight years that I was governor. Um, so I knew where these guys would go. We had two years with Democrats that uh, we did. We expanded Badger Care, so we had the second highest percentage of people in the United States were covered with health insurance, the only state ahead of us was Massachusetts, and they had a mandate. We had passed, uh, not only had we vetoed, had I stopped what they were trying to do on reproductive rights, but we had actually passed the most comprehensive family planning bill and education bill in the United States. Um, we had, uh, we had, we had, um, we had taken the stewardship fund and had tripled the amount of money going. We had created, uh, de dealing on the idea of student debt, the Wisconsin Covenant that was really based on trying to help students fill that gap between what they get from financial aid and what the actual, and where, so they don't have to go and borrow money to go to, I mean, we'd done a, a lot of stuff. And I knew that that was in jeopardy. And when I look back at it, maybe I, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me over the years, do you regret that you didn't run? And um, yeah, sure, at times, but other times I don't. Plus, so that's the political side, the personal side of it. I've always done things in these kind of eight-year terms, and you know, it was time for us to do other things. And as I've said to many people, I loved every single minute that I was governor. I loved every minute I was attorney general, and I've loved every minute not being governor. <laughs> <laughs> when you were governor, was there a, a moment that that meant the most to you, sort of bringing together why you got into politics and and what you could accomplish? Uh, well, there were many in their quiet moments, um, and I think everybody here who has been in office, you know, in, in that kind of office, um, maybe not quite as dramatically as a governor, but I've, I can't tell you the number of times that a veteran will come up to me. It's probably happened in the hundreds and would say, I, you know, just see me on the street and just say, I want to thank you. I was a Iraq. War veteran, Wisconsin was the first state that gave free tuition. The federal government followed us, but we uh, we adopted free tuition for veterans, and they will come up and say that, and then tell me what happened with their life. I had a, a person, um, uh, I was, if you can believe it, I was actually sitting in a barber shop and... Uh, uh, <laughs> Doing what? <laughs> ready to pay some guy a lot of money for nothing, but... Um, <laughs> But um, a, a person was walking, it was, Monroe, it was the stadium bars in Monroe Street, the guy was walking by the plate glass window and he, he said, I saw you, I can't, he walks in, I'm sitting there in the chair and he, he walks in, I want to say to you, I was 26 years old, um, or 24, 25, something like that, about to leave to graduate from uh, a state university and I had to go off my insurance and I had uh, a chronic illness and I was devastated. And then Wisconsin was the first state in the country I'm proud of that, that allowed people to stay on their uh, parents' insurance plans until age 
what did we do, Joanna? 26? We did 26. Um, the federal government, is, you know, ACA followed that, which was great. But he came and explained what that had meant, that he had that coverage. And, and so uh, a lot, that's where the moments come. They come from those moments of people coming, a, a parent coming and saying their child had needed surgery and they couldn't get it uh, because they were working people, didn't qualify for the former Badger Care, but as we created something called Badger Care Plus, now could get it and their child could get the surgery, that was a corrective, uh, uh, I think cleft palate or something that was correctable and that could happen. So those are the moments. You were governor during a period when a lot of young Wisconsin men were going off to fight in Afghanistan and Iraq and some not coming home. As I understand it, you went to visit every Wisconsin family that lost a, a soldier. What was that experience like? Um, it was hard. I went to over a hundred funerals. Um, tried never to, uh, occasionally I'd be asked to speak, but normally it would be a moment to, uh, you know, I, I was in the position on the beha on behalf of all of you as, as Wisconsin citizens to say what we thought and how thankful we were. And all of you probably would have wanted to do it and couldn't do it. And that was my uh, responsibility and my honor. Um, it was really hard because you see where these young men and women came from. And there were a number of women that were mm -hmm. part of that. Uh, and they, they came from the, you know, from families that were committed and were trying to do the right thing and very small town. I mean, it was a, it was a small town war, generally speaking. It was military families, generally speaking. Their father, others had been in the military. Um, it shows you what leadership is about because you can play on that and lead people to their deaths uh, because they're good people and they're doing what they think is right. And if leadership has moved you, I mean, Vietnam is the greatest example of it ever, of bad leadership taking great people and just chewing them up. And um, so that was very, very hard, but important. Yeah. The other social movement um, moving through the country and your personal life is racial justice. And for those of you, probably everyone in this room knows that, that Jim and Jessica have two African-American sons. And I can only imagine what that experience has been like for both of you during this period of what it's like to have a young black male out in the dealing with police and in the world in this situation. It is. <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of challenge people who, this is another one where the Woody Harrelson comes in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of truth in this little story because I've actually had friends who are arguing about, you know, our, our African-American people being too touchy or too sensitive. And I actually had a dear friend of mine say, you know, I just, I'm, I'm over it. I said, well, that's easy for you to say, you know. I mean, it was exactly Woody Harrelson. Yeah, I, I mean, I yeah. think in many ways, generally speaking, the white world kind of says, we're over this. We want this to be done. And it's pretty hard for people who are living with it to say, oh, okay, we'll just, and now that we're watching what's happened, but I, I don't, without getting into story, well, I'm going to tell one story about Please one of do. my sons. Yeah. 
I mean, imagine if any of you owned three duplexes in, the, in a village in Dane County, li had lived there for seven years, are driving home at 10 a.m. in the morning, are pulled over in front of your house, by the, your own house, by the police department. Officer comes to the, the door and says, you know, there was a woman at that last corner who was standing on the sidewalk but who you should have been able to tell wanted to cross the street. And your obligation is to, which by the way is not the law, when they're in the crosswalk you are, but your obligation is to anticipate that and to have stopped and then gets into what are you doing here? Um, you know, what, why are you here? And I ask any of you, ask any single one of your African-American friends and they will tell you that's happened to them. And it is not, it is not, um, uh, economic, because you go to the richest African-American person you know and ask them, and they will tell you stories like what I just told you. Now, for many of us, and again, it gets back to the, I don't, again, don't want to relate it all to the hearings yesterday, but it's like to most white people, when they hear that, they don't like it, but it doesn't just, it does not have them walking out of a room just with their stomach in knots. They, they don't like it, they don't want it to happen. But if you're a black person and you hear that story, you just feel the, how you have been diminished by that fairly minor little, uh, this, this wasn't, nobody pulled out guns or started shooting. I could get into worse incidents with my kids and some things that have happened. But I'm trying to give you a pretty modest one to sort of tell you how this plays out in real life. And it is a real inability, I think, for a majority culture to just be able to empathize with what it's like to be on the other side of that divide. So when I see these things where somebody gets shot because, I mean, like probably most of you, but you see somebody get shot and it turned out they had done something wrong, like, Hadn't somebody stolen the New York case? He had stolen something out of the store. And then I hear the response of, well, he shouldn't have stolen anything. Um, yeah, he shouldn't have, <laughs> you know, but it is, it, 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 it is something that is, uh, uh, and it's, a, it's so hard to deal with. I, it, you know, when I was attorney general, we, we undertook massive uh, training around the state in cultural awareness and so on, and I'm sure all of that helped a little. But you look back at this is such an intractable problem. I know you've thought and even written some about this. It's such an intractable problem that, you know, you, you can't have uh, a series of training sessions in 1994 and then think that somehow we've alleviated all the kind of stereotyping that goes on. But, you know, here, here's the test I put out to many when I talk about this issue. Like, you know, for most white people, if you said to them, um, look, we know, and I'm, I'm not suggesting this is the fact, but let's just assume it's the fact. We know that 70% uh, of the uh, burglaries in this community, they've been identified as African-American people that are committing the burglaries. And that's why we stopped a car down the street that had an African-American in it. That was a legitimate factor for us to consider 
that it was identified as African-American people who are doing it. So when we were adding up a car in the neighborhood, going slowly, African-American driver, that was legitimate for us to pull a perfectly innocent person over and ask them, what are you doing there? Now, for most people, that makes sense because we stereotype and categorize people that way. If you did it with blue eyes, that 70% of the people that have committed the burglaries have blue eyes, we would never permit that, that you know, genetic factor to be one of the things that we allowed police to consider in pulling people over. And yet we are so culturally conditioned to believe that the color of skin, which we now know as we know more about human beings, is one very, very minor different genetic thing in us, one tiny little thing, no different than the color of your eyes, um, but we ascribe to it all kinds of uh, stereotyped racial identifiers, and unfortunately, two of them that are so deep in our culture that it hurts me to even talk about is that somehow intelligence is one of them and criminality is one of them. And that is at the core of what I think we're dealing with here. That's a brilliant answer, and I have to confess, as much as I've thought about this issue over so many years, that the blue eye allegory is very powerful. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your heritage and your father uh, and mother, uh, both very significant figures. But I found a, a quote that I'm sure you have memorized from your dad that that I just thought was, was really wonderful. Uh, and I hope he actually said it. <laughs> you never know. Uh, he, he wrote or said, how do we choose to live? I choose freedom. I choose an open society. I choose the wellspring of renewal in every generation. I choose the First Amendment. Yeah. It's really quite something. That quote is actually on the plaque on the city county building. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> Tell me about how your dad influenced you. I'm going to talk about my mom first. Okay, great. <laughs> my, I was the son of a really extraordinary woman who was uh, elected to the state legislature in 1948 uh, when she was, they had just come back from the war, typical post-war family. They had three children within uh, less than six years. The three of us were born. The Democrats won nothing at that time. There was no Democratic Party. They were starting to form it, so they just put people's names on the ballot. So they put my mother's name on the ballot in 1948 in Madison. It hadn't had a Democratic member of the Assembly ever or since the Civil War or something. And uh, she won. Uh, and one of the stories that I love about it is uh, her mother, my grandmother, or my mother said to her friend who came and said, this is wonderful, Ruth, you've won this. And my mother's comment was, what am I going to say to my mother? <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of, to me, encapsulate, encapsulates a lot of, uh, of what women deal with and how careful they are about their mothers and all of that sort of stuff. But um, So she was wonderful and uh, very, very different. Many people I know here knew her. Um, 
And my father was, I don't know, I, mean, I feel like you do, I'm sure. It's just sort of, it uh, doesn't matter what I ever do, I'm never going to. I'm never going to get there. You know, I'll keep trying, but I'm never going to get there. Um, I want to say I'm also yeah. married into a wonderful family, and uh, <laughs> I don't. Uh, Jessica's family uh, are, and in this audience, I'm a little hesitant to say it, but uh, are, she's Jessica Laird Doyle, and she's the niece of Melvin Laird. And um, it was um, when we were getting married. Um, Shirley Abramson's told me this story. She went up to my mother and said, "Isn't it wonderful?" And my mother said, uh, yes, but, uh, I mean, we're a little worried it's a mixed marriage. And Shirley, <laughs> <laughs> Shirley actually said to her, what do you mean, uh, uh, Catholic and Protestant? And she said, no, Democrat and Republican. <laughs> it's worked out. It's worked out by Jessica being a great Democrat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you got out of... Uh, Harvard Law School, is that when you went into the Peace Corps? Uh, no, we've or been in the Peace, Peace Corps, Corps before that. Yeah, before that. So it was Peace Corps and the Navajo Indian yes. Reservation. Yeah. What did you learn about First Nations people from that that sort of sticks with you? <laughs> well, one, I learned how to be a much better lawyer than Harvard ever taught me. Um, uh-huh. I mean, I came in, I'll just give you one, but it's so, uh, uh, I, um, you know, I was trained to be a great combative lawyer. That's not the way it works. For those of you who know Navajo world, this is huge. It's as big as the state of West Virginia. Yeah. Uh, my clients were mostly only Navajo speakers. There's a, uh, and, and so I would have some big fight. I'd want to go and we'd go to a meeting and then I would, um, you know, listen to them talk and talk and talk in Navajo and not know what was going on. And I was all antsy and ready to go. And then at the end, they would say, we've decided we're going to do this. And what I learned was you listen, you be respectful of people. You don't look for ways to, I mean, like so much of our culture and certainly our legal culture is combative. Um, and, uh, and that's, that was not the Navajo way, and I, that was an enormous lesson to learn about how to try to, not to say I haven't been plenty of combative, situ- that I haven't been combative in my life. I have hardly mellowed out, but it certainly helped me understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just, we developed wonderful friendships that have endured over the years with many people, and I have, and when I became governor, and attorney general, then governor, it was enormously helpful. We had... We had the nation's first and it has really become the model cooperative arrangement that was going on between Indian nations in the state of Wisconsin and state government, the consultation requirement that required every cabinet secretary to visit the uh, Indian lands um, uh, once a year to talk about what was going on. Uh, We just, uh, we were able, when I was attorney general really, with a whole team, a number of people are here to really bring peace to what had been going on in northern Wisconsin in those days of the, the treaty fights. Um, so I think we've moved a long way in Wisconsin towards understanding and respect. And um, and I think I was able to influence some of that, and it's because of my time on, in Navajo land. I know that uh, in all of politics and in, in the Democratic Party, there, there's always a certain tension between idealism and pragmatism. And I know you've thought a lot about that and have your own sort of philosophy about 
the way to, the most effective ways to proceed? Well, I think idealism is great, and it's a motivator, obviously, but you got to get down and actually get things done. I'll just give an example. One of my big fights when uh, was the expansion of Badger Care. And there was a significant amount of the left that would say, you're just being incremental. We want single payer here in Wisconsin. And you'd say, you know, you really can't do that in one state. I mean, I can give you a list of reasons, but let's just start with most people have employer-based insurance, which is governed not by state law, but by federal ERISA law. We had major collective bargaining agreements with with UAW that were effective all across. There's no way one state can do it. So I'd say let's really get to work to make sure that we can get the 200,000 people who don't qualify for current Badger care but can't afford health care, let's get them health care. And that was a constant fight that went on. And I think it's probably not just personalized to me, I think it's probably pretty generally true between governors, executives that are trying to get things done and people who are good people with great political thoughts who want to um, think in, you know, bigger terms. Um, so I, you know, put me down on the side of be idealistic, but you better be really pragmatic to get anything done. And I think when you look at the great, the great presidents um, and governors, that's they're able to get down and get to work and get stuff done. I'm going to go to some questions from the audience. Um, Here's an obvious one. How do you see the next five weeks of the governor's race <laughs> unfolding? Well, I can tell you how I hope they're going to unfold. Uh, <laughs> but I'll say a couple things that, about this that are really unusual. Uh, Tony Evers has been getting beat up on television, and I have people come up to me and say, tell, go tell Tony to put more TV on. I say, that's fine. You know, why don't you give him a million dollars, and he'll go do that. <laughs> Uh, he's going to be badly outspent, and yet, despite that, he seems to be hanging in there. And there are a couple things going on, I think. One is there's a national uh, event that's, you know, the national uh, backdrop to all of this that's very favorable to Democrats. And two, for all of those us who have been kind of really political over the years, Tony has a breath of fresh air, and I think the people of Wisconsin are seeing this. They do not believe that this man, who is, uh, sort of goes against my stepping aside for younger people, but who I think is 66, who has had serious cancer, who is a serious man, they do not believe that he's in this to try to advance his own political interests. They think, they believe that he is in this to actually help people. And I think the cuts that have gone on to education, the have gone way too far, and people have said that's enough. Uh, so I think this, I think if you, if those of you, I don't want to presume anything, those of you who are inclined to support Tony Evers, make sure you open up your checkbooks and get him the resources that he needs. I think this can get done, and I think he's going to be a really, really good candidate. This, and a good governor, this isn't a really, I've known him for many years. This is as honest thoughtful, truly concerned human being as you will find in politics. And um, so that's how I hope it goes. But I also know 
There's going to be so much that's going to come in. I mean, do we really believe Tony Evers wants sex predators in the classrooms? I mean, that he's, he's up there. But that's the kind of stuff that's going to just... We, we got, because we live, I guess, in a Republican area, we've got three of these slickest mailings, and they actually use language... Why do you live in a Republican area? <laughs> it's a nice house, I guess. <laughs> we, it's not... Uh, there are Democrats there. It's not like... Uh, but... Um, if Tony Evers ever said what's in this stuff, it's like shocking. And uh, so anyway, it's good versus bad, and let's hope good wins. If you were a governor when this came along, how would you have handled Foxconn? Oh, that's pretty easy. I mean, <laughs> uh, we put together big uh, economic development deals. The biggest was Mercury Marine. Uh, in which they moved uh, a thousand jobs here. Uh, this deal is eight times more expensive per person than the most expensive economic development program we have ever had in the state of Wisconsin. Eight times. Uh, the amount of money that goes to these guys is beyond anything anybody could ever. You know, when we were desperately trying to keep GM in Janesville, we made an offer that I thought at the time, even then, was way beyond what we should have. But we were, you know, they were playing us all off against each other, and it was a nasty game. Um, and we kind of fell for it. They didn't take our offer because Michigan offered them even more. This deal is like, 10 times more than we offered GM to stay in Janesville. So imagine a situation where the first draw on the state treasury, I forgot the, I don't know the exact number, let's say $150 million goes to Foxconn. Imagine what I had to live through when the recession hit and in one year our tax revenue dropped, this was typical all across the country, but in states by 25%. 25% drop in our tax revenue, mainly because sales tax, the big driver of sales tax is vehicles, and when nobody bought a car anywhere in the country for a year. So imagine if something like that happens, and you're cutting schools, and you're cutting universities, and you're doing all of the hard things we had to do, but you're writing a check to Foxconn for $150 million? I mean, this one, and I've said, I think that, um, I think that, I know Kevin Conroy is speaking here later this afternoon. He's got 2,000 jobs he's created. So that's a fifth of... Exact sciences. Yeah, yeah, exact sciences. That's a fifth of $4 billion. So he should mm -hmm. walk in and demand $800 million from the state. I mean, he's actually done it. Or what? think what Epic deserves, you know? I mean, Epic, Epic's already created, done this. And if, you, if that's worth $4 billion of taxpayers' money, they ought to walk in and lay down the bill. And So it's not the way to go. The way to go is... Look at Epic. Look at Exact Sciences. These are entrepreneurs coming out of great education and uh, uh, facilities and research. That's where you make, and then you make investments as a state in where where the future lies. I mean, one of the worst things they've done here. We were a leader when I left office in alternative energy. There was $600 million of wind projects ready to go the year after I was governor, already signed and ready to go. They came in and killed all of that. And that, you, you know, why would you bet on coal if you're a Wisconsin government instead of alternative? We don't have coal. I mean, why would you bet on that? So anyway, it is a, the wrong bet on the wrong 
company, and obviously this is all about Trump and the the billionaire. And I mean, that's this is that's what this is about. It isn't about Wisconsin really doing something for this state. A couple of questions to ask you about regrets in various ways. <laughs> I'm not sure where regrets they go. Regrets, I've had a few. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Former Governor Thompson recently said he regretted building so many prisons. Any regrets on your part about not being able to do more with criminal justice reform? Well, first of all, we did quite a bit. When I came in, we had, I think, nearly 1,000 prisoners actually out of the state, and we brought them back in. We never built a prison during my time. And when we did have a Democratic legislature, we actually passed some really major reform that was going to allow people for nonviolent offenses who were in for less than five years to do two-thirds of their time. But by the way, if you just did that, you could reduce our prison population from about 21,000 to 18,000 almost uh, you know, very rapidly. That was stuff they changed within the first couple of weeks when the Republicans came back in. But no, I, I'll tell you, we talked about it earlier, that I don't know what I could have done more, but I'm sure there is. I, when I watch what still happens between law enforcement and particularly the African-American community, I regret that, you know, I mean, we did a lot on this, but it had, didn't seem to be very effective. And, um, you know, that's one we had talked about earlier that I, I wish we had done more of. Um, in retrospect, would you have handled the high-speed rail issue differently? I don't know what uh, more what I could have done. done. Right. <laughs> I brought the, yeah. we, we won big. And um, the only thing that could have made a difference, and it wasn't us, and believe me, we were pushing on it, and I don't even blame them, is it took probably an extra six or nine months for the Federal Department of Transportation to work through some very important administrative um, matters. And we were telling them, look, we're running up on an election here, we've got to get this done. And if we had been able earlier in that year of the election of the year to actually have started the construction, mm. it would have been different. But we came, it did not, it was post-election that the construction was going to start. And that's the one, I don't know, again, I, mm -hmm. I don't know what we, we, re, we had a great, uh, Secretary LaHood at Department of Transportation, in fairness to them, Nine months was an incredibly fast period of time for the federal government to get what it had to get to, but it wasn't enough time in the end. You were um, in on the early parts of uh, Obama's uh, campaign and, and close during that entire period. What was it like for you to be sort of inside with, with Barack Obama? Uh, it was one of the great experiences of my life. Um, I was, I think, the second governor in the country to endorse him when this was still very much up in the air. Uh, I was really, I was a surrogate, went around the country for him uh, in that, uh, I, you know, I still keep it. I'm sure it doesn't work. I've got him on my, in my directory on my cell phone because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, it doesn't work. But I'll tell you, uh, one of the most if not the most memorable experience mm. of my time as governor was that uh, we went to the inauguration of Barack Obama and Jessica and I were invited to come to the White House 
at the end of the evening after he and Michelle had gone around to all the balls. And we went to the White House that night at about midnight or something because he'd been out all night. And it was, a, it was, when I say small, I don't mean 10 people, but it was 50 people, most of whom were his family. And we were there when Barack Obama and Michelle came back, in, came to the White House for the first night as President of the United States. And uh, he is, as you all know, because I think people know him well, he is the most gracious, thoughtful, even that night, he came around and spent, I don't know, again, it's like JFK. My memory is that he spent uh, 25 minutes with Jessica and me. Uh, but in fact, it was, probably, um, it was probably five minutes, but he graciously came around. And then, and I know we, we are getting in close to the end, but then the next two years, if you look at what happened in the next two years, his first two years before the 2010 election, was an explosion of just absolutely great, fabulous policy, including the ACA, including almost getting past the, uh, um, the, the climate change bill, uh, reforms to juvenile, the, the, the stimulus, they, they would call, I would be able to talk directly. I was able, I'm really proud of this, but all over the country, schools were in huge problems because of this drop in revenue, and I, was the one that went to the White House that said, you've never done this before. You give us aid for uh, Medicaid and so on, but give a direct stimulus. They put $30 billion into that stimulus to keep the public schools in this country going. And if that hadn't happened, we would have seen cuts to education like you, had, well, actually, we later saw when the new administration came in, but, but, but just deep, deep cuts. So. It was an exciting time for an absolute, and, and he lived up, let me just say, in my judgment, he lived up beyond any hope I could have had for how good a president he would have been. He was fabulous. On that wistful note, let's, <laughs> let's end it and think about 2020, but not talk about it. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. If you like it, please give us a rating or a review. We'd appreciate it. We're also releasing audio from the fest on some of our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Shows like The Corner Table, The Madsplainers, and Cap Times Talks. Be sure to give those a listen. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for tuning in. 